reading this morning is taken from the book of Luke, from verse, Luke 11, from verse 1 to 4. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Our second reading is taken from the book of Luke 23, from verse 32 to 34. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This is the word of the Lord. Do you want to be trained how to pray by the Son of God himself? Do you want to be tutored how to stand in God's blessings? Well, then you're in the right place today as we continue our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. Last week, Stephen began with our Father, and that's the petition in which we position our hearts rightly towards God. I urge you just to catch up and listen to that talk if you haven't heard it already. Now today, we see how God positions his heart towards us, and the way in which he does so is to impact, radically impact, the way that we relate to one another. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. These petitions are about our deepest existential human needs. Our need for daily provision, for forgiveness for wrongdoing, and for the ability to forgive those who have done us wrong in this fallen world. Now, it's a challenging landscape we inhabit. Our culture is increasingly a post-forgiveness one. The TV presenter Davina McCall recently commented, it seems that forgiveness isn't on the agenda anymore. It seems like this loss of anybody following any kind of religion means you're unable to pardon anybody. You just hold that vendetta against them forever. It's hard avoiding toxic exchanges on social media, isn't it? The leaking acid of bitterness and resentment, the increasing lurch in our culture towards revenge. One writer has observed that unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself and waiting for the other person to die. And sadly, it seems like there's a lot of poison in the system at present. And unforgiveness leads to tragic results It leads to relationship breakdown, it leads to divorce, it leads to community splintering, ultimately it leads to war. Unforgiveness is just corrosive. We've never needed these verses in the Lord's Prayer as we do today, because Jesus calls us to a different way. We're a forgiven people, and we're to be a forgiving people. And these three petitions provide anchors for our soul. They provide ways of recognizing the potential in humanity, in our humanity, and of walking this Jesus way of becoming more fully human. 
So we pray first for our daily bread. The first thing that Jesus instructs us to pray for is sustenance. We're never to take our daily food for granted. It is always by the grace of God. But while we need physical food, we also require spiritual food. And God gives us this in Jesus, who declares, I am the bread of life. We need the means to be forgiven and to forgive others. And we receive both of these in Jesus Christ. He's the means of our salvation. He's the source of our strength to enable us to forgive others. And if the rot at the heart of things that's identified in these verses, the sin within and the sin without is real, how we need Jesus as the bread of life, how we need what he does for us on the cross and the forgiveness that he so beautifully demonstrates there. And then in the next simple petition of four words, forgive us our sins. We ask God to make right every wrong in the world and within us. A few years ago at Brighton Railway Station, a digital departures board stopped showing the train times. And instead, it broadcast the anonymous confessions of Brighton citizens. The board was called the waiting wall after Jerusalem's wailing wall. And these are just a couple of the heart-rending disclosures that it transmitted. I regret being cruel to my first girlfriend, but I can't fix it now. Nobody knows just how much alcohol I drink. I drink all the time. I've stolen from others my whole life, even though I don't need to. People would be horrified if they knew what I was capable of. Before I became a Christian, I could have added some confessions of my own. Every time I ask the Holy Spirit to convict me, he shows me more that I can confess. When Stephen led us just now in confession, I'm sure the Holy Spirit touched on one or two things for you too. Forgive us our sins. Jesus is utterly concise and rigorous in his wording here. We're not to follow culture and label our sins as dysfunctions or disorders, as syndromes or sicknesses. Forgive us our sins. Our petition acknowledges fault in us. It names sin as sin. And that means we take responsibility for our part. We're not saying my neurons made me do it. That's the bad news. Now hear the good news, which overshadows the bad extraordinarily. That in this prayerful petition, we approach the one who can undo our wrongdoing. At Brighton Station, you see, those confessions just hung there on that board. The sin unacknowledged, and the means of grace unknown. There was no atonement for sin. There was no God there acknowledged to grant absolution, which is why our society desperately needs this prayer. Forgive us our sins. But Jesus says, forget trying to fix your sins yourselves. Stop trying to hide from the Father, from whom nothing is hidden anyway. 
The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Rejoice. In the face of the moral darkness within us and without, God grants us the forgiveness of sins. I'll never forget autumn 2001. I was on an alpha course, and it was the moment when I understood that my blunderings and my casual cruelties as an adult weren't just the stuff of life, but they were sin. And I learned that Jesus gave himself sacrificially on the cross for me so that my sins might be forgiven. St. Paul says in Romans 5, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're not forgiven as those who've made themselves right. We've never been able to do that. We never will. No, Christ dies for the ungodly. The ungodly, that's us. And what a freedom and what a grace. The author Francis Spufford calls the church the league of the guilty. I love that. And that's a label that we're to wear with pride because it means that we willingly rest in God's grace. At Calvary, God's judgment, sorry, his forgiveness, perfectly blends judgment and mercy. God calls account, to account our sins. He calls them to account. He calls to account the offense against justice. And yet at the same time, as his son pays the debt, he extends to us his mercy. And more extraordinary still, his forgiveness isn't issued as a kind of cold contract. It's coming with a warm, enveloping, loving hug. Forgive us our sins. Why do we pray this? Because we never fail to sin and God never fails to forgive us. Jesus doesn't ask us to pray anything that he doesn't know the Lord, his Father, will grant us absolutely. Forgive us our sins. Why? Surely we've been securely saved and been justified. Yes, of course. But because to pray this daily is to live in fellowship and appreciation of the one who's paid the debt. It's also to ensure three things that permit our continual spiritual well-being. First, we resist the temptation of cheap grace. We never treat God's forgiveness like some kind of vending machine. We must never forget the cost borne by us, for us, by Jesus on the cross. The writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Secondly, we resist the temptation to seek God's forgiveness as a result of our own moral striving. We remember that forgiveness is always by the grace of God. These three petitions, they're all about dependence on God, our dependence on him. I think of the ways that I often try and resist dependence on God, leaning on my own self-will. 
One secular psychologist, Adam Phillips, dryly observes this about human nature. He says, it's an affront to our sovereign selves that good things might come in spite of, not because of us. Praying the Lord's Prayer, we remain in humble appreciation of God's mercy. We make God, not self, sovereign. And then third, praying this prayer, we resist the temptation to accept God's forgiveness while refusing to forgive ourselves. When we've been in a long-term situation, a long-term relationship perhaps, where we've been badly hurt, it may feel hard to forgive ourselves for that. But we must never put our view of ourselves above God's. Our view of ourselves as unforgivable above God's view of us as eminently forgivable. If we do, that's idolatry. Know you were forgiven. Revel in that. So what does all that mean for the next petition, our forgiving of each other? Well, relationships are tough, aren't they? We've all been hurt and wounded. And the truth is that forgiving those who've hurt us can be just plain hard. The 18th century poet Alexander Pope wrote, to err is human, to forgive divine. And the American wit Franklin Adams changed that to, to err is human, to forgive infrequent. Our flesh struggles to forgive, which is why we're to pray forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. In the Lord's Prayer, after God gives us our daily bread, Jesus says that the primary thing that God is committed to doing is to forgiving. And then Jesus says that the primary thing that we're to be committed to doing is forgiving. Unforgiveness is just as old as the hills. Since the days of Adam and Eve, of Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, you might say that unforgiveness is bred in the bone. And the only antidote to it is the forgiveness that comes from heaven. When our culture advocates forgiving, it tends to promote therapeutic forgiveness. We're urged to forgive as a way of freeing ourselves from the prison of our own unforgiveness. Forgiving, forgiving improves our health. It's good for us in body, mind, and spirit. Or our culture advocates forgiving because it's socially expedient, because forgiving promotes community harmony and good relations. And both of these reasons to forgive have validity and have merit, but they're not the reasons that Jesus gives us for forgiving. No. He says to us, forgive because you have been forgiven by God. Receive God's forgiveness and you remain close to the very source of strength by which you'll then be able to forgive other people. And how we all need this, especially my wife, 
Uh, I remember a time just after Jen had given birth to Skye, our daughter, and I'd gone back to work. And one morning I spotted a dead fly on a shelf in the fridge. And when I came back in the evening, I noticed that the dead fly was still on the shelf in the fridge. And um, I suppose I just kind of wondered why, given that Jen had been at home nursing Skye all day, she hadn't seen the dead fly and thought to remove it. And so I asked her this, and of course she exploded. <laughs> sometimes we need to forgive other people, sometimes we just need to be desperately forgiven. Now it's important here that Jesus underlines the link between forgiving others and receiving God's forgiveness. By inference, he's saying that when we harbour resentment, that blocks us from knowing how dearly beloved we are, from receiving the fullness of God's love and mercy for us. Don't let your unforgiveness be a blessing blocker. So how then are we to forgive? Well, we press into the cross that's the place where we're forgiven and it's the place where Jesus himself astonishingly forgives his very executioners. Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. Maybe you're walking through some kind of valley of unhealed pain in your life right now as a result of being hurt. At the cross, God gives you the strength to begin forgiving. I like the realism of the worship singer Carolyn Arendt, who says, I remember once telling a friend about a situation in which I did not feel I could even be willing to forgive. That's okay, she said. Can you be willing to be willing? I thought about it for a while and I said, no, I'm not sure I can be willing to be willing. That's okay, she said. Can you be willing to be willing to be willing? To the degree to which we can be willing, we begin the journey of forgiveness. In your mind's eye, and with Jesus at your side, you revisit the scene of the hurt with the offender before you. You name their offense and you release judgment to God. And then you extend forgiveness to them. And if that's something you feel drawn to doing, we'd love to help you to do that in the prayer ministry time shortly. You do this as you're ready to engage again with feelings of grief and anger and pain. You do this as you feel that your anger has been properly honoured. The Bible doesn't call you to premature forgiveness or to ignore the need for the exercise of human justice. But it does call you and me to stop playing the inner vigilante. And then if you're able, you can go deeper. When forgiveness can involve the heart as well as the will, the healing potential for it is very great. It may be that we've absorbed lies about ourselves 
as a result of being hurt. Certainly when hurt has been systematic. We may have made vows like, I'm not worthy of love. I'm a fool for being in that situation. Maybe I just deserved it. We need to renounce these vows. We're also likely to have demonized those who hurt us. I think of certain adults from whom I experienced injury as a child. It was very easy for the child in me to label them as ogres and witches. And even as adults, when we harbor unforgiveness, we can tend to think of those who've hurt us in two dimensions. We need to renounce this way of seeing. And our model for all of this is Jesus at the cross, who pleads from the very bottom of his heart, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Humiliated, like a common criminal, he refuses to curse and to strip those in front of him of their dignity. Ronald Rollheiser has a potent metaphor for what Jesus is doing at the cross. He says Jesus acts like a water purifier, a filter. But he transforms the curses and hatred which are directed at him and he transmits only love and mercy in their place. Jesus' love in this is a thing of wonder. But remember, that it was as a human being that Jesus forgave. He's the only God who's ever had to forgive other human beings from within our human world. The steps he took, you can take too. I spoke to two godly women in our church this week. One suffered domestic abuse in a relationship for years. I asked her about her motivation for forgiving. She said this, I don't want to let one person change who God has made me to be. And she's recovering God's image of herself. The other woman has been caused great pain by a chaotic alcoholic brother. And I asked her, how are you beginning to forgive him? And she said this, God gave me a vision of his intention for my brother's life and how he intended him to be. She's starting to see her brother through God's eyes and she said yes to this image and her brother is beginning to change. None of this is easy. Forgiving is a messy business. It's a bloody business, but it's a beautiful business as it was at the cross. There Jesus bears gaping wounds given him by his captors, and yet astonishingly, he forgives them. He speaks no words of condemnation, just as when we're forgiven by God, there is no condemnation in Christ. Jesus loves to forgive. It's the devil who loves to condemn. The choice is ours. And if in our mind's eye, we can bring with us to the cross the person who hurt us, then we can ask Jesus to forgive them. And if we're able, 
we can then go one step further and we can forgive them ourselves. In this life, depending upon the attitude of the offender, we may never know earthly reconciliation with them. Clearly, great wisdom is called for in this. But beneath the shadow of the cross, in our mind's eye, we can know freedom. Because here, at the sh in the shadow of the cross, the deceptive heart, the heart we each carry, the heart that sins and hurts others, and the wounded heart that we all carry, the heart that has been hurt by other people, can become the restored and healed heart. Confessing your sins and forgiving others, you just come closer to the heart of Jesus. You draw closer to God. You enter a place of freedom, of new beginning, freely forgiven, freely forgiving. C.S. Lewis, Lewis but it's like this. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Imagine a political arena in which we could listen to each other's views with curiosity and respect. Imagine a social arena in which people withheld judgment from one another and they turned their eyes away from vitriol spilled in print. Imagine a workplace arena in which gossip ceased and in which any disagreements were covered over by words of forgiveness. Well, this is precisely why we pray for God's kingdom to come and why each of us is called to model a better way, forgiving and even praying prayers of blessing over those who've hurt us as we draw on this amazing resource, this ancient prayer of Jesus, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. In Jesus' name, amen.